Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the Neil Garfield Show, a presentation sponsored by www.livinglies.wordpress.com, GTC Honored, and The Garfield Firm, serving all 50 states with news and analysis of the latest bank scams against borrowers, homeowners, consumers, and investors, and providing legal representation throughout Florida. This program is for general information only. It is not a solicitation for services or legal representation and should never be used as a substitute for advice from a licensed professional. And now, here's world-renowned financial expert, attorney, and blogger, Neil Garfield. Thursday, January 11th, 2018. I wish everybody a happy and healthy new year. 2018 is the year where we all get serious about winning cases for homeowners and making those wins public, really serious. And that means we all must wade into the weeds and get the details on procedure, law, and rules. We all know that the courts tend to rule in favor of the banks, but a little-known fact, which I have mentioned here, is that there are thousands of cases in which homeowners have won, but they have been silenced by settlements in which the settlement is under seal of confidentiality. I've been involved in many of those, and that's all I can say about it. But the opportunity this year, based upon many factual developments and some legal developments, the opportunity this year for homeowners to start winning in a public way and in larger numbers um, is clearly present. I want to thank the people who supported and are continuing to support our last seminar on death of a salesman, what happens when the so-called originator goes out of business or into bankruptcy. And I'm announcing that we are offering a WebEx seminar on February 2nd on evidence, discovery, objections, and trial strategy. Watch the blog for further details as a preview to that and other things. Tonight we're going to talk about some rules of evidence, strategy, and some discussion on discovery. Follow the instructions you received when you called in, um, and you'll appear on my dashboard if you have a question. Um, I see uh, some people already have questions, but I haven't completed my material yet. Um, Questions will be answered in the order they come in. Uh, We have 30 minutes tonight, which means 28 minutes talk time. Uh, When you ask a question, Give me, quickly, give me the status of your case and ask one question. 
I'm broadcasting live from Duval County, Florida, brought to you by the Living Lies blog, GTC Honors, Lending Lies, Amgar, and the Garfield Firm, with offices in Florida. And this show is specially brought to you because of donations to the Living Lies blog from listeners like you, many of you. Thank you. And for those of you who are not contributors, we ask that you hit the donate button on the blog or call 202-838-6345. That's our main number and not the number to reach the show. Please pledge whatever you think you can afford. If this show has value for you, then please make a contribution to help us continue helping you and all consumers. I think most of you who have followed me, especially those who have followed me for years, know that probably 75% of everything I do is without compensation and funded, self-funded uh, by me and by donations. We need your help. Homeowners often believe that they have all this information that shows the foreclosure is a scam, that the trust owns nothing, that the certificate holders own nothing, and that the banks and services are bad actors. The question is, how do you use that? And behind that question is, how do you turn that knowledge into something that results in a favorable judgment in court for the homeowner. And the parallel question to that is whether information is evidence. Uh, spoiler alert, information is not evidence. In trial preparation and discovery, knowledge is used for one of two things. The first one is eroding the foundation or credibility of the prima facie case against the homeowner. That prima facie case, in most cases involving foreclosure, is almost always going to be made because of presumptions that the court is going to apply, even though the truth, the facts, uh, the real life uh, does not uh, is not congruent with the presumptions that are used by the opposing side in the court. The presumptions continue to be in effect until they are rebutted. They are rebutted when you erode the foundation or credibility of the prima facie case against the homeowner. Every successful strategy for winning a foreclosure defense case rests on the ability to blow up the robo-witness and deny the foreclosing attorneys the ability to get documents, which is hearsay, into evidence under an exception to the hearsay rule, or the ability to make the testimony or document less credible than it would appear at first blush. In every 
judicial foreclosure action, the first party to present the case is the party claiming that it has a right to foreclose. And at the end of their case, absent anything else, uh, they probably will appear to have won and judgment will be entered against the homeowner in the absence of a defense or uh, in the absence of the uh, foreclosure defense lawyer raising relevant, well-stated, and timely objections, as well as conducting a very effective cross-examination of the robo-witness. Let's start with the things we know. The question always asked of me is how, how do we prove that? Okay, we know that, you know, the, the whole thing's a scam, but how do we prove that? The answer is that you don't prove it, but you know it. And through that knowledge, you chip away at the credibility and substance and competence of the robo-witness and any documents that they seek to introduce as evidence as an exception to the hearsay rule, which is usually a business record exception. You accomplish this by performing discovery where you ask questions that you will most likely ask at trial. And here, the knowledge of how securitization actually was used by the banks, by the servicers in the real world will help you pinpoint what is absent. So in order to understand the narrative of a foreclosure defense case, you need to be able to have um, a program in mind where you know that if it were true, for example, that the trust had purchased a group of loans and that group of loans included the subject loan, your loan, then what else would also be true and which they never show and, in fact, they fight not to tell you? Well, there'd be correspondence, there would be agreements, they would, there would be reports of due diligence on the part of the trust or some agent or authorized party on behalf of the trust. There would be a number of things that you would expect to see there, and I'm not going to list them all here or go into them because we don't have the time. But... The issue is, in discovery, you ask for that correspondence because you know that uh, if this was a real transaction, you wouldn't simply have an assignment of mortgage or an endorsement and the sale poof occurs. You would know that in any reasonable business setting, some due diligence would 
be conducted and that there would be correspondence on the point. Hey, we're buying um, uh, this so-called group or pool of, of loans. How much do you want for it? Uh, no, we won't pay that much or um, uh, the uh, uh, the other side saying we won't accept uh, uh, your offer, it's too low, that kind of thing, which goes with every transaction, every credible commercial transaction that ever occurs, whether it's in banking or anything else. Just ask any store owner. So what you're looking for are the documents you would normally expect to be in existence if the recitals contained in the documents that they want to introduce, if those recitals were true. One of the recitals is $10 and other valuable consideration. We know that $10 wasn't paid. And we also know that other valuable consideration was not exchanged. And the reason it wasn't exchanged is that the seller didn't own the loans to begin with, certainly did not own the debt, may have had possession of paper, but the paper did not reflect the actual um, uh, payee that should have been on the note or the mortgagee that should have been on the mortgage or the beneficiary that should have been on the deed of trust. So if the implication, and it's never the statement, is that the remake trust acquired the debt and not just the paper, then you ask questions about the existence of the trust. That sounds counterintuitive. They're in there. They've named the trust. Well, actually, they've named the trustee as though it was the plaintiff, but we know that the trustee is not the plaintiff because it's in there as trustee for the a, a supposed trust. And if you read the pleadings carefully, you'll see that in many cases, not all, but many cases, there's no trust mentioned. It's not named as a trust. It's not the normal thing to do if you were talking about a business entity is that you would uh, say General Motors, a corporation organized and existing under the laws of the state of Michigan or whatever it is for General Motors, I don't know. The trust would be the same thing, organized and existing under the state of. That's never mentioned. So you would want to ask questions about whether the trust ever existed, whether it exists now, and in what state it was organized. All things in discovery that would lead you to confirm or deny their statements about the existence of the trust. You'll ask for the correspondence and the agreements between the trust and the alleged seller of the loans. These things should exist. If they don't exist, that enables you to bring out in 
cross-examination of the robo-witness, the fact that these things don't exist. And therefore, the paper, the assignment, the endorsement, whatever it is, the allonge, whatever they're relying upon is in a vacuum, which uh, wounds them deeply and and causes their claim to have far less credibility than it did when they rested their case with a prima facie case. You'll ask about whether the robo-witness knows anything about a purchase of loans and whether the subject loan, your loan, was in the group of loans that was allegedly purchased. And you'll ask for how he knows that such a purchase existed. My experience is most robo-witnesses will say, I don't know anything about that. Uh, but there's a number of ways of handling whatever his answer is. And you'll ask about what consideration was paid for the loans and who paid it and when. The robo-witness will generally not have any knowledge, much less personal knowledge, about any of these items. And in discovery, opposing attorneys will stonewall you, saying your request is irrelevant. Remember that the test for a uh, discovery that will be allowed is whether it has um, uh, any possibility of leading to the discovery of admissible evidence. So what happens is that when the objections are heard or the motion to compel the answer is heard, the frequent um, uh, error that's made by foreclosure defense counsel is failing to prepare for that hearing the way they would for trial and make being able to make the point with a memorandum of law and so forth that says hey I just want to know what's you know what supposedly went on here and it's relevant because they say they're authorized but they could only be authorized if these things happened and if these things existed. So right now I'm just asking the question. I'm asking for a description of the document and the location. Um, the uh, request to produce will ask for the same thing and they'll object all over again, etc. But the point is by hammering this issue home and getting rulings in the court file, you're setting up a potential, uh, potentially successful motion in limine to block them from introducing ev any evidence that is um, derived from the evidence which you were prevented from getting, um, or you simply save it if they did give it to you, which sometimes they do. Um, you save it for trial. If you try to prove facts where you don't have personal knowledge or documents or for which you can't lay a proper foundation, you're going to lose. And it's this point with its nuances 
that is so frustrating for lay people because they want to get everything in about how bad and disgusting the lawyers and the servicer and the trustee are and everybody else when none of that is probably if it's let in as evidence the trier of fact the judge is going to disregard it unless you have some really credible and persuasive uh, uh, evidence about the items that you want the judge to take note of if you tear apart the robo-witness and the documents sought to be introduced in the name of the foreclosing party, your chances of winning go up exponentially. That's what lies at the base of every foreclosure case I ever won. It's not by proving that securitization was a farce or anything else like that, even though you all know I think it is, but I knew that I couldn't prove it without the cooperation of the other side, which I knew I would never get. So what you prove, or rather what you do, is you reveal at trial the uh, defects in the case presented because the documents and the witness's testimony don't conform to um, uh, the facts or that facts that would normally be true are, are not present in support and corroborating their statement that this assignment of mortgage or endorsement or whatever or power of attorney is real. So an, an introduction to the subject of evidence is that the layman's understanding of evidence and the lawyer's understanding of evidence are extremely different. Lawyers know that nothing is evidence on its own. Outside of a courtroom, Nothing is legal evidence. Judge has to impliedly or directly rule that the item or testimony is going to be accepted in evidence and therefore part of the court record. Whatever you think you have or think uh, or, or actually have still isn't evidence until a judge rules that the testimony or document or photo or screenshot is admitted into evidence, sometimes over the objection of counsel, of opposing counsel. Um, obviously, if there is no such objection, timely made, well phrased, with the backup of case law, where it's any type of gray area, if there is no such objection, the objection's waived. And no matter how objectionable it is in retrospect, that's part of the evidence in the record, and the judge may weigh, give great weight to it. So when it becomes part of the court record, then and only then may it be considered by the trier of fact 
which in the case of foreclosures is almost always a judge rather than a jury. Information turns into evidence in the form of live testimony or documents, and this is where lawyers and obviously pro se litigants are grossly deficient. Testimony is automatically going into the record as evidence as, as it is given, unless there are well-placed objections. Objections that are not time, timely uh, are waived or they're overruled. This is where lay people think the judge is all biased, but the judge doesn't have any choice if the hearsay objection or whatever it was happened in connection with a with a question five minutes ago. It's waived. The time to object is instantly. You can think of it as going to the gym and, and doing squats. You're constantly standing up to object. And if you know that you're going to object to something before trial, a motion in limine can be filed, but be careful there because that prepares the other side for your objections. The objection must be based upon one of the established grounds for objection and not be argumentative. So if counsel is leading the witness, putting words in the mouth of the robo-witness, or the question presupposes something not in evidence, then the objections are leading and lack of foundation. If the robo-witness is being used to provide foundation for the introduction of payment history or some other document, then a proper objection might be lack of foundation, lack of personal knowledge, which then goes to competency of the witness, and hearsay. All documents are hearsay without exception. Let me say that again. All documents are hearsay without exception, but some documents may be admitted under, under some exception to the hearsay rule. Some documents can be admitted not for the proof of the matter asserted, but merely to prove that the document exists because that relates to the state of mind of a witness or party. No report from either side is admissible without proper foundation. Without foundation, the report will be and should be excluded from being included in evidence for the trier of fact to consider. Opinions that are often included in reports often diminish the credibility of the report unless the writer has been qualified as an expert witness. All testimony, reports, and opinions will carry very little weight with the courts unless they are not only credible, but also persuasive. It would make anybody think that what they were saying makes sense and probably is the case. Lawyers and pro se litigants often make the mistake in thinking that it means something because you get something into the record. I've often heard lawyers say, well, at least we got it into the record. Testimony or documents, that means nothing. Unless you're planning an appeal where the chances are six to one that you're going to lose. Information is all around us. News stories on the Internet made up stuff from the Internet. 
and all sorts of books and studies have information in them <coughs> that you may want to present as evidence in a court of law. But until that information is reviewed by the judge and admitted into the court record upon proper foundation testimony, it isn't evidence. It won't be admitted without proper foundation, and proper foundation is not opinion or the statement that everybody knows or it's all over the Internet. If you have a document authored by someone, then generally the only way to offer it is with the foundation testimony from the one who wrote it. Now, that is a two-edged sword. It's something you can use against them because they don't have proper foundation testimony, but it's something that will be used against you if you don't have foundation testimony that uh, will support the introduction of the uh, testimony or the document. And that's it as a preview to the seminar. Thank you for joining me, and we'll see you back here next week. Thanks for listening to our broadcast. We hope that you tell your friends about us and let them know that there is hope and help in this financial crisis. Tune in every week to The Neil Garfield Show for free information and advice and visit our blog daily at The Living Lines Blog. We provide support services, the latest strategies, analysis, expert consultations, testimony and declarations to use in your battle against the largest economic crime in human history. For information concerning Neil, the team at Living Lies, or the law firm, go to www.livinglies.wordpress.com or call 520-405-1688. The opinions expressed on this broadcast are those of the host and should not be attributed to any other person or entity.